Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we discover God's glory in what He's doing around the world. Welcome to this special edition of the Engaging Missions Show. I'm your host, Brian Ensminger, and this episode is kicking off a special focus for us during Ramadan. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is Ramadan? And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about today. My goal during this short series is that we would focus our learning, prayers, and actions on understanding and impacting Islamic people for the kingdom. And that brings us to this week's guest. It's his first time on the show, but we're actually familiar with some of his work because of our pre- previous guests. Sean Steckbeck referred him to me as the best person he knows in Muslim ministry, and I hear he's quite interesting, so I'm really looking forward to that. Don Perry, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Would you mind taking just a minute and sharing a little bit about your background and your ministry? Sure. Um, These times when I get to speak with somebody who loves Islamic ministry and wants to help others, this is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um... I live in uh, the Northeast in Connecticut, and I've been working in Islamic ministry for a number of years, pretty much equipping and training people, uh, both in the States and in other places, about how to understand Islam and relate to Muslims and how to reach them more effectively so that we can see not just one or two coming to faith here and there, but we can start seeing movements of the kind that have appeared. Uh, we want to see lots more movements appear all over the world in the name of Jesus. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay. And can you share with us uh, a little bit about maybe, I, I know that you've had some global ministry. You've been involved in different areas of the world. Could you maybe just touch a few of those points for us? Sure. Um I started years ago um, working in South Asia, and in South Asia, it's uh, loaded with Muslims. Uh, Consider South Asia anywhere from Pakistan, Afghanistan area, over to uh, Bangladesh, and even into Myanmar a little bit. And in South Asia and in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as North Africa, there are um, just large populations of Muslims who are mostly unreached, Um, My role is to come alongside local workers in an area. They could be um, local church workers, um, house church networks, or missionaries, and do some training and consulting, helping them to understand the harvest field a little better, and helping them to see what could we be doing that could help us to reach our population more effectively. Um, Where I tend to focus on is... Um, helping people understand the Quran better, helping them to understand some of the strategies that are being used worldwide to reach Muslims more effectively, 
how to understand basic principles of discipleship and multiplication so that when people do start coming to Christ, we're not seeing one here, one there, a little church here, and a couple of churches there. But how do we do discipleship and training so that we see multiplication of disciples and leaders and churches uh, of the sort that are commonly called church planting movements or disciple making movements? Okay, yeah, and I remember uh, looking through your materials, and I think also Sean had mentioned that you've been involved in some similar work to the kinds of things that, um, um, oh, the, the name is escaping me now, um, Dr. Patterson has, oh, has yes. been involved with, and um, I, I'm assuming you're following kind of a similar model where you're, you're simplifying church as much as possible, empowering the, the indigenous people as much as possible to immediately take action and begin obeying Christ. Is that is that accurate? Yes, um, my personal approach is pretty eclectic, but uh, it, it incorporates a lot of George Patterson's work, which is, you know, when you get right down to it, he started doing what he was doing in the 60s and 70s, and it's influenced people all over the world. Um, basically, what we're looking at is taking New Testament principles and practices and trying to carry them over as closely as possible into local situations without having Western practices and church traditions from our our background carrying over along at the same time. So we're looking at basic principles of doing what Jesus and the apostles said to do and following, um, to a large extent, some of the strategies that we see in the Gospels and the Book of Acts, things like Luke 10, things like the principles of outreach that we see in Acts, and really trying to keep the focus on things and practices that are simple and reproducible and teachable to others so that people are not learning theology way up front at the on the front end as much as they're learning how to be obedient, how to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, how to be looking outward as much as possible and loving people as much as possible rather than being concerned primarily with having the right kind of church or having the right kind of theology. You know, theology, we found, will come along in its course as the Holy Spirit lights up the scriptures to people. But uh, people like Sean and myself will focus on helping people understand and follow what Jesus actually said to do. Okay, yeah. Uh, as we're getting to know you a little bit, do, is there maybe a meaningful, quote or, a meaningful quote or a scripture that's kind of served as the foundation for how you approach life and ministry? Well, years ago, uh, before I even knew what I was doing, which is often when God starts things, um, I, uh, I was reading the Psalms, and I was reading in uh, Psalm 2 where it says, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And I sensed the Lord uh, nudging me and say, pray that. And I was like, what does that mean? What do I do? And I just started reflecting on that verse in prayer and started praying it. And over time, it did become a very significant verse for me where I understood that God did want me to ask for the nations uh, and ask for the ends of the earth that he would find a way for that to happen over time, I've been able to work in both Hindu and Muslim uh, majority regions of the world, mainly in South Asia and East Africa, 
And I found that these promises that God has uh, impressed on missionaries and workers over generations of time, they're very real, and God is very interested in um, fulfilling them when we start praying them. Yeah, that's great. Uh, One of the things as I think about our Christian life is that very often when uh, God, it seems like when God gives us a direction to go, maybe something that we're to accomplish uh, along with him, that that's also met with resistance, that we have challenges and failures throughout our lives that are, um, that I think are even heightened when we start trying to walk with, with uh, God and according to his plans. Have you faced any of those kinds of challenges or failures in your life? Oh, I, I, we don't have all afternoon, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I will obviously have to point out to my own character, which God has had to refine and God has had to um, call me out on various things like being distracted, you know, not praying enough and not really realizing it's got to be by the power of the spirit. Um, When I would go and do consulting, I would be called into situations in um, India or in Pakistan And I'd be sitting there with a group of church planters and evangelists and pastors, and they're waiting for the, the, the American pastor, as they, they call all Western workers, pastors, you know, to, to give them the great word of the Lord. And I would sit there and I would feel, Lord, I am so incompetent to be here. Hmm. God, I am so ill equipped. Who is sufficient for these things? And the Lord would like whisper, our sufficiency is of God. And he, I would just cry out to God and I would go back to my room and send an email to my friends at home saying, oh, please pray. I am like so over my head in this situation. And the next day, there would be such a concrete leading of the Holy Spirit to illuminate what needs to be said, what issues need to be raised, and how I could bring some insight to local workers. I found out the faithfulness of God um, I think one of the most important things that I learned over the years um, was it doesn't matter how smart I am or how insightful I think I am or how much I know, but am I allowing God to bring me into situations where what I like to do and what I've what God has put in me is a good match for what local people are needing and wanting and looking for? And so it's a match not only of the teacher and the student necessarily, because I learn probably more from them than they learn from me, but it's a question of letting the Lord bring me into the right situation and having people pray that I will be sent there so that we can connect and we realize, yes, this is why I'm here. This situation, I do have something to give It's not because I'm so great, but it's because they've prayed, I've prayed, and God has brought us together for an encounter with the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and the kind of guidance that God gives when people are seeking him and wanting to work together to see people reached for the Lord. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I find that I find that when God uses me, that, you know, when he gives me a revelation or gives me something that there's this tendency almost immediately to think, wow, look at me. I'm so amazing. Do you ever have that experience where it's tempting to take that glory from God? Um, most of the time. Yes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no different than anybody (laughs) else in that regard. Um, when, when the spirit is moving and, you know, I'll, I'll be very honest. I've, 
I've studied so hard for years and I've prayed and I've worked really hard with everything I have to assemble resources and knowledge and understanding to be able to bring it to people and in a way that's helpful to them. When that's happening, I can feel pretty smart and pretty like, yeah, man, you know, I am just like really on a roll here. And the Lord always finds a way to remind me, look, bud, it is not about how smart you are. And we'll give you a reminder about that very shortly, just <laughs> in case you need another one. It, it is, there's always a, there's always a tension between our character, our giftings, and it's all about whether God is enabling you to do anything or not. If the Lord had not been on our side, it says in the Psalms, uh, it would be very different. Um, you know, it's like Paul said, you know, I labored more abundantly than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And I've seen all of these situations where if the Holy Spirit was not moving, it would be a big, embarrassing mess for me because I'd be completely unable to help these people apart from the grace and spirit of God. Absolutely. Yeah, for for me personally, I've even found that occasionally somebody will ask me something and I'll think to myself, well, I know this person. And there'll be like this sense of pride for a second. And then I'll realize, well, wait a minute. I don't even know the answer. All I know is I know a person who <laughs> who knows the answer. Right. And so I, I immediately have to take those things back. And so many times I find in my life, I'm going back to God going, please forgive me. This, this wasn't me. This was you. I want you to have the glory. I don't want to take any part of this on me because I'm thinking about that glory and the holiness of God. And I don't want to keep anything that was reserved for him for myself. Cause I've, I see in scriptures how that turns out. Um, do you have any maybe personal habits or maybe things that you do on a regular basis that kind of contribute to what God's done in and through your life? Well, there are a few of them. The most important is prayer and reflection and listening to God, which I try to do uh, frequently, daily or more during the day, reading the scriptures uh, in the spirit. Um, There's so many things I've seen in scriptures that I've read dozens of times, and suddenly it's very pertinent in a way I never saw before for a situation in training, consulting, or equipping. Um I have certain journals that I study, certain authors that I follow, certain sources of information that I regularly go back to. Um, I'll, I'll probably be able to touch more on that later. But mm-hmm. over time, I found that if I'm going to be as useful as possible, it takes a lot of discipline on my part to make good use of my time and energy, getting enough sleep, exercise, healthy lifestyle or else I just get worn down, I lose my edge, and I lose a lot of my effectiveness. So part of it is just plain taking good care of myself. The other part is habits of prayer and study. And over time, I've found certain sources of information that are exceptionally helpful that I go back to repeatedly, and then I tell my friends. Yeah. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the thing about getting enough sleep and you know maintaining your focus and your edge, I find for myself, and I suspect it's just because I'm an American, that that's really hard to do, that it seems like there's always more that I can and feel like I should be doing. Are there any things that you've done in your life to help you be as effective as you can and still know where to draw that line? Um, One of the most important is listening to my wife. Um, She's got a a much better handle on these uh, situations than I do quite commonly. Uh, Listening to my friends who say, 
you know, Don, you just need to give it a break, give it a rest and know when to take some time off. You can't wear yourself out. Um, part of it is just being honest with myself. Um, you know, I'm going to be 60 years old in a couple of weeks and I just don't have the horsepower that I did 20 years ago. (laughs) I've had to learn over time that I need more rest than I used to. I need more breaks than I used to. I can be a workaholic and I've had to sort of break myself of some of those types of habits. It's very, there's always a tension because, you know, you read about how Paul was just always striving to do this and, and do that so that more people could be equipped. But at the same time, he didn't have a family. He was in a very different situation. Um, it's very different to uh, have a situation. I'm bivocational. I do have a, a regular day job that I do. I live in the States. I travel uh, when invitations come in, but when I come back, I often have a job. And, you know, having a balance in my life is very important at this age. And um, every year that I age, it becomes a little more apparent that I need to learn more about good balance, taking good care of myself so that I'll be able to do this for, I hope, many years to come. Oh, that's great. Let's let's move on and let's let's talk a little bit about Ramadan. We're pre-recording this, but this is going to go live on uh, June seventeenth, which is the first day of Ramadan this year. And for some of for some of us listening, we know that Ramadan is a special time of prayer and fasting for our Muslim cousins. But can you share with us kind of what's the point of of Ramadan? What what's the point for them? Well, what. One of the things that I do in the States is uh, do workshops on, on talking to Muslims and understanding them. And the figure of speech that I often use is, if you live in a region with lots of Catholics, um, you know how people behave when it's Lent. Mm-hmm. You know, they do this, they do that according to what the church and the priests tell them. Think of Ramadan as a season like Lent for Muslims, where um, they are taught that they practice the virtues of fasting, um, almsgiving, and prayer to a greater extent than usual. The really serious Muslims will not eat after sunup or a- until after sundown. Um, they, many times they will abstain from other pleasures, sexual activity, and other stuff. There will be extra hours of prayer. There will be prayer vigils. Um, they will find ways to do almsgiving or uh, benevolent-type activities for the needy. It's a season of internal renewal and corporate renewal, really, at its best. I mean, quite honestly, Islam is not too different from Christianity in the sense that there is a wide spectrum, and there are plenty of very nominal Muslims who, you know, hardly will do anything different except not look like they're obviously not observing Ramadan. But, you know, for many Muslims, especially the ones that God is drawing, um, it's a time when they're, they're earnestly seeking after God and they, they, they don't have a touch from God. They don't have a sense of God's presence and they're earnestly seeking it, um, this is where this is where times of prayer for the Islamic world is so important because many of the Muslims that are the ones that God in whom God is working, they're earnestly looking to Allah for a touch, a sense of his closeness, a word, a revelation, something. 
And as the worldwide movements of prayer have ramped up over the past few decades, there's more of this happening during Ramadan. So, you, again, in your mosque, there will be some very nominal, careless-type observances, a lot of people in the middle who are trying to keep the rules, as it were, and then a number of others for whom this is a very intense and serious spiritual quest. One of the things that we tend to see, at least in the media, and as I was doing a little bit bit of research, is that a lot of times there will be reported increases in violent activity and things like that. As a believer in Christ, is this a season of the year that we should be afraid of? Well, I think that in general, the enemy wants us to be afraid of everything and everybody, and especially Muslims. The enemy, um, that is the devil, wants us to be afraid of Islam, afraid of Muslims, afraid of talking to them, afraid of any interactions, and afraid of anything that would put us in contact with them. My own view is this is, I look at this as a time of opportunity. Um, Dickens said it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. There's never been more trouble around the world um, that can be referenced to some Islamic movement or some Islamist-inspired group or activity, but there's also now the kind of openness to the Holy Spirit and to the gospel of Christ and to the name of Jesus than there is now. So I would look at this season of, of uh, Ramadan as a season of opportunity and, you know, keep your armor on. Uh, one thing that I would say is do not think that you don't need to be really understanding within your spiritual tradition how to do spiritual warfare if you're going to get involved in any sort of Muslim-directed prayer activity or outreach. The enemy will push back very hard. Um, at people or groups that are engaged in going after Islamic outreach. But, you know, this is where you need to have people praying for you, praying with you. Uh, But there's no reason to be afraid um, of people. Uh, People are not our enemy. People are the lost sheep of the house of Ishmael, and we're being called to love them and bless them. Um, You know, you have to take reasonable precautions, of course, but in general... I look at it as a season of grace and opportunity. Wow, that's good. You know, as you were sharing the the thing that came to me, and j- just a, a remembrance that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so, if there is that place of fear in your in your life, yes, be wise, but not necessarily something to be afraid of. And I, I appreciated you sharing that. Um, as we think about this, if if I was maybe working with uh, a Muslim or working, living in a community where there were some Islamic people, what kinds of things would you recommend that I do during this season when I'm interacting? Well, the most important thing that I could say to anyone is remember, these are people. They're people. They're Hmm. just like us. They, many of them, if they have not grown up in the U.S., which many of them haven't, they're people. They have kids, they have jobs, they have bills to pay. They're often living in a, uh, in a culture that doesn't understand them and regards them with deep suspicion. They are used to people looking at them sideways. Uh, they're used to feeling out of place and under, and 
feeling sort of like Daniel and his friends felt in a foreign land. It's like, why am I stuck in the middle of this place with all of its ungodliness when I want to honor God? Um, you know, the simple things, loving them, blessing them, um, looking for ways to do things that will be a blessing, looking for ways to show them that you're different from the other people who are obviously uncomfortable, uh, praying much for them. Prayer cannot be underestimated or understated it, or overstated. I'm sorry. It's, it's critical because the devil is really, really, really wanting to be this big antagonism and divide and between Muslims and Christians. And our job is to reach out and our job is to show that we're different. We love, we care. We bless, we're generous, we're, we're fun to be with, we're different from the people and the ways that they have been told, look out for Christians because they're this and they're that. Our job is to show them, well, yes, you know, I, it's too bad that there are people who are Christians and who behave in this way, but I love Muslims. I, I love people. I, I love God and I, I love being with you. I, I like talking to you. And that is the real key is love and grace and blessing. You, uh, you sent me some materials prior to this interview, uh, a download, and I forgot to ask you off air, is it okay if I make that available for download for our listeners? Anywhere you like. Okay, I would, love, you like. I would love to do that. As I was reading through that, there was one thing on page three that kind of stood out to me. It, it asked us to, to pray or ask God that there would be an army of intercessors raised up to stand in the gap for the Islamic world. And that is a, a powerful prayer, to pray for more intercessors. Are there other prayer targets that you would recommend? Um, as far as aspects of uh, things that we should be praying for? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, on that same page, there's there's a lot of them, but I think one that I would really focus on is that um, that believers in the states or wherever you might be, I, I guess a lot of your listeners are here in the states, mm-hmm. would just start developing a burden for the lost sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Ishmael, for the Muslims, uh, rather than being uncomfortable or. Um, not liking them or some other thing to say having a burden for lostness and a desire to do something about it even if our um, initial feelings are not comfortable asking for god to help people to get over those feelings and to start taking little baby steps towards um saying hello doing something that is generous or thoughtful or praying, or starting anywhere that you might think to start, some way that is non-threatening and uh, fairly easy to do without rocking the boat too much. Yeah, definitely. And for those listening, um, a few weeks ago, we had Kevin Greeson on the show, and he had a framework that he shared that would help people understand how to say hello, and then also how to get into a conversation about the gospel. If you stop by the show notes page, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash Don Perry, I'm going to make a link to that available as well, because I think that might be a valuable resource. And Don, I'm so glad that you mentioned Ishmael twice, because when you did, it it triggered in my head uh, Hagar. It's interesting to me that one of the names that we have for God in the Bible came from Hagar, El Roy, the God who hears. Mm. 
And, and, you know, we, we think of Muslims as being so different and certainly they're not serving the same God in the same way. They're, you know, they're serving Allah and there's, they're definitely cousins, not brothers and sisters, but we do have that common heritage through Abraham and also through Adam and Eve. And I believe that God wants to reconcile us. What kinds of reconciliation have you seen as a result of prayer and as a result of people coming to, um, as a result of Muslims coming to see Christ during the season of Ramadan? Um, I'll split that up a little bit. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a true story. Um, I was working in a Muslim majority country and in this region, actually two Muslim majority countries, one in Asia, one in Africa. Um, in both places, there was pretty big tension and antagonism between the Muslim and Christian communities. And I was working with some friends and the Lord really impressed upon us to, um, Bring the word of the Lord from Jesus that loving our enemies is not an option. Hmm. Blessing those who have, you know, treated us badly is not an option. And, and we went through some of these sayings of Jesus and it was highly uncomfortable because we were, you know, white guys from the States and, you know, who are we to come in and tell them what they should do? But because all we were doing was raising the words of Jesus, it was received, albeit with some, you know, tension. But after some time and prayer, the local leaders really realized, you know, the Lord is bringing us a word and we need to obey Jesus. Even if it's hard, even if no matter what, are if we're really the followers of Jesus, we need to be those who will honor his word and do it. And they started turning and changing behaviors and blessing the local Muslims and spending time with them and reaching out in ways that were very gracious and genuine. And the testimonies that we got back after that process started where leaders in the communities, doors were opening, kids were playing together from the two communities, um, people were getting together to study what the Quran says about Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah, to look at the Bible, for prayer to come up, and the kinds of miraculous things that would have never happened under any other conditions other than reconciliation, and it had to be the followers of Jesus who led the way at some cost and discomfort to themselves. And it was a, it was a very hard situation to sit in these initial meetings. Um, but the fruit that came out of it was quite miraculous because following Jesus is always the best thing we could do. It's always the thing that will bear the most fruit, even if it re- requires some pruning as it were in ourselves before we can do that. Um, that is the reconciliation um, vignette that comes to me most strongly. Wow, that that's powerful. You, you mentioned that you were going to split that into kind of two parts. Was there another part? Well, the the, the Ramadan part. I mean, you've had other guests who mm-hmm. I'm sure have have touched on this. That Ramadan is a time when Muslims are looking, many of them, for the miraculous, for something that doesn't happen every day, and because mm-hmm. they are putting together. Uh, more time, more energy, more effort to seek God and to focus on God and to cry out to God. And all over the world, every year, stories come out worldwide um, about the types of things that are happening during this season, because all over the world, there are um, 
initiatives in churches and uh, mission groups and other initiatives that are putting together prayer for Islam on a scale that has never been seen in history up until recent times. Um, and worldwide, there is always, as it were, this bump of things that happen, whether it's dreams or visions or encounters of some sort that can be traced, I believe, to two things happening. God is calling the Muslims to Jesus. He's calling them to himself and he is giving revelation of his son through day-to-day encounters with believers as well as encounters with the Holy Spirit. While the Muslims are praying, the Christians are praying, and the followers of Jesus locally, if there are any, are putting themselves out there and God himself is putting himself out there through the Holy Spirit, giving dreams and visions and other um, revelations of himself. It's really quite a remarkable, you know, choreography, if you will, of all of these different um, considerations that happen worldwide. We see in part, we know in part, we're seeing little bits of it, but this bump it coincides I'll mention this just to make sure it gets on. There's mm-hmm. a beautiful website that you've probably had people remark on already, um, 30days.net. Okay. Um, www.30days.net. Um, it, it's a group of people that put out resources for praying for Islam during Ramadan. Um, 30days.net, you can get a daily email uh, that gives you a people focus and some prayer um, ideas. And for quite a few years now, it's served as a real focal point to help people pray more effectively and learn about Islam, especially during Ramadan. And this is in the resources section of that document that I sent to you. Oh, that's great. As we're going through this, I got to say that uh, you're actually answering a lot of the questions that I had written down as potential options before we get to them. So I'm really excited about that. I think that means we're probably kind of tracking toward the same things. One of the things you mentioned in your materials was the idea of praying for entire families to know, Mm. to come to Christ. And, you know, on one level, numerically, of course, that makes sense. You want a whole family instead of just one. But I think there's probably a deeper reason for that. Can you share with us why entire families are important? Um, yes, it's critically important. It, this would be, uh, the same thing could be said for American families in your hometown um, or families in Afghanistan or Tanzania or anywhere in the world. Many times the focus of evangelism has been on finding a person and a, a person to have a personal relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. and to get that person to pray a prayer, make a commitment, be baptized, and become part of a church. And all of that is is fine as far as it goes. But what we forget about is that in through the entire Bible, God looks at families, he looks at communities. If we're focusing on one person, we will often find the person that's easiest for us to find. It might be women, hmm. it might be young people, Whereas in many Islamic cultures um, and Islamic communities where people are here as expats, if you will, mm-hmm. it's a patriarchal family-based culture. And so where the real action is, is even if you have an individual who is interested, what you ought to be looking for is 
How do I develop a conversation where I'm speaking to the family and especially speaking to the gatekeeper, if you will, which is the head of household, who is usually right. a father or grandfather, because da this daughter or that wife can say or do whatever they want. But if dad is not on board, you cannot expect very much to happen except a big pile of trouble um, for your effort. Yeah. But if we're patient and we're willing to look at the big picture, what we're looking for is if we have a conversation with this or that person, um, how is your family? Tell me about your family. Could I perhaps meet your family sometime? Because once you have the head of the household saying, we will let you come or I will let you come and talk to us about God or I will let you talk to us about the gospel now everyone will listen because Papa has said so. And if Papa gets into the gospel and decides my family is following this, he is an influencer to other heads of household. Or even if it's a matriarchal, you know, a mother, female-led household, that influencer speaks to other influencers. In this culture, many times a younger person or a wife if they are the only one that is, uh, as it were, interested or making some sort of move in that direction, they can be easily discounted and marginalized. And your hope of seeing families and neighborhoods and extended families coming to Christ is gone. In most cases, unless God does an exceptional miracle. And one of the things that we need to keep our eye on, we see the apple. God sees an orchard. We see an apple. God sees apple trees and orchards. You have to keep your eye on the, the bigger picture, which is we're looking for movements, and movements are not likely to happen unless you are going to be able to reach entire families through heads of household, where those heads of household will speak to other influential people in their circle of influence. <laughs> I'm so glad that you used the analogy of an apple, an apple tree in an orchard. As you were actually sharing this at first, my initial thought was, you know, you're potentially trading the idea of going for one person for changing an entire family tree. Yes. You know, uh, an entire family tree potentially coming to Christ and to the gospel and then the influence that that has. Our American Western philosophy always seems to be, well, I don't want to discount the one because I don't know what that one will do. And I, I certainly agree with that. But at the same time, the idea of a, a strong influence in a household, I think is really powerful. It actually speaks to a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago about uh, a guy who's ministering in a Buddhist area and his he felt his specific calling was toward the fathers, toward the men, not because they were easier, but because if he was working with a child, he could potentially be creating an unsafe situation or a situation where the cares of life could, and then the fear and those kinds of things could actually draw them away from Christ. But if he could get the father to connect with God, then the potential for not just his nuclear family, but even the extended family of cousins and brothers and uncles, because it was him, was opened up. Is it similar in, in that Islamic culture? Um, highly, highly transferable ideas. Everything that your uh, friend was saying is very, very closely replicated in Islamic contexts. And quite a, quite often in Hindu contexts as well, you know, basically once you get outside of North America and Western Europe, 
that's going to be an approach that is very, very profitable and very important not to overlook or minimize, even to the extent of, of baptism. Uh, this is way off topic, but I'll bring it in quickly <laughs> just to say that we're, we're very eager to, you know, especially read the book of Acts, the rapid baptism, which I'm all for, about the only time that I would advocate delaying baptism is if you have an individual who's very ready, but his family is not ready. And if he was baptized, you might, you might antagonize the whole family and the entire community. Whereas if the family comes along and the father comes on board and the family is on board, if they go together to baptism, now you've got something that is able to withstand the inevitable backlashes that Mm -hmm. will come. Not, not, in every case, but there will be some uh, discord. But if it's known that the father had thought this through thoroughly and it, he was completely convinced this is where he wants to go, there will be a lot less trouble than if the daughter or the wife gets baptized out someplace and then comes back and says, guess what happened? <laughs> yeah. Very, very different situation. In our culture, a lot of times it's fairly easy to recognize a Muslim, particularly a Muslim a woman wearing a burqa, those kinds of things. But sometimes it's not quite as simple. As we're working with and talking with people in conversation, are there maybe some key key things that we can rec- use to recognize their, their faith or their religion? A recognize in the sense of knowing when you might be seeing a Muslim or how to approach them. Both. So, I mean, it starts with recognizing that you're talking with or seeing a Muslim, and then the next step is, okay, and then now that I have, how do I approach them in a conversation? Well, um, in general, if you're talking about folks who are have um, come here from overseas, you know, they will generally not look like white Americans. They hmm. will be a little darker than us. Yeah. Uh, they may have an accent. They may dress a little like us, but, you know, uh, you'll often see these folks up in New England where I live. You will often see them running uh, convenience stores or retail shops. Uh, that tends to attract a lot of uh, folks from this population for whatever reason. Um, sometimes I'll just say, you, say, you know, so I, I don't want to be insensitive, but um, did you grow up someplace other than around here? And sometimes they'll say, well, I'm from Bangladesh, I'm from Pakistan, mm. I'm from somewhere. Oh, that's very wonderful. I, I've, I'm, I, I love, you know, this country, this culture, whatever. Um, it's often very helpful to, um, you know, ask in some way that won't come across offensive. Um, and, and I usually do that if there's nobody else in the store or nobody else in the park, uh, rather than having people gawking and looking and what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, asking about, you know, have, are they from, did they grow up? Are you from around here? And, you know, they always love to hear good things about your country. Yes, I've, I, I love people from your country. I've been there. If you've been there and you show that I've been to this city, that city, I mean, they light right up because that shows that you really like it. Um, in general, men talking to men, women talking to women. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a lady in a store, I'm not going to walk up to her and start conversation. That would be the roughly American equivalent of me going over to a lady and staring at her, you know, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. weirdly. They're highly sensitive to, um, you know, that kind of thing. If, uh, if there's a guy, I'll talk with a guy. 
if it's a lady and she's on the other side of the retail counter, you know, I'll, I'll give plenty of space and everything and not like look her in the eye. And, and, you know, it's, it's really one of those things where you don't want to give the impression that you're interested in them in some inappropriate way, but that everything is very much um, social. Again, there's a little more on this in the, the handout, but mm-hmm. in general, um, be gracious, be positive, smile, look relaxed, um, look interested, look um, like you're having a good time talking with them. And sometimes that'll be the first time anybody's ever looked like they had a good time t- talking with them mm-hmm. or treating them as though it's strictly business here. I'm here to pay for my gas or give me a pack of cigarettes or whatever, and I'm out of here. But ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to somebody who's willing to relax and talk. Sometimes you'll go into the gas station or the retail shop, and this person's hanging around with nothing to do. If you've got the time and you're not just there for an in and out, I'm going to hand you my credit card and then I'm out of here. Sometimes you'll end up with the most remarkable conversations at a park or a retail setting or someplace else. Wow, that's good. Uh, Do you have any... You've got that resource guide that I'm going to make available for download. Is there maybe a book or two that you would also recommend for our listeners to check out? Um, Probably the best book I would recommend is um, Muslims, Christians, and Jesus. Um, It's by Carl Medeiros, um, M-E-D-E-A-R-I-S. Medeiros lived in the Middle East for quite a few years. Um, He knows the ropes. And he has a genius for making Islam look and sound non-threatening and give a lot of very practical down-to-earth um, hints about how to get started. Muslims, Christians, and Jesus by Carl Madiris. Um, that's sort of like a great intro and how-to. There are many people who, you know, and he gives um, Quran verses in there, too, that talk about Jesus and the Gospels. Um, if you're talking to somebody... Uh, or if your listeners are a little more advanced and they want to um, dig a little deeper into things, there's a wonderful book um, that your other uh, people you've interviewed have probably talked about called The Reference Quran, um, which is a translation that um, translates the Quran into modern English, but also gives many notes about parallels in the Bible and other helpful things. It's not the, a translation you would use if you were talking to a Muslim, because they would probably only like to look at a, a, a translation that's translated by somebody they trust, mm-hmm. but it can help a student, uh, a serious student or a Christian worker very much, and you can get it online at referencequran.com uh, for maybe 15 or $20. Um, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a whole page of references out there, but these are two of the better ones that I would recommend just in a nutshell. Okay. Now, Don, we're just about done. We're pretty close to the end of our time. I'm, I'm wondering if there's maybe one parting piece of advice or guidance that you could give us and maybe some contact information if somebody wanted to connect with you. Yeah, I think the the greatest thing that I ever did that got me where I am today is I realized at one point in my life that I needed to have a closer relationship with Christ And I did a very deep reconsecration and a deeper surrender to God's purposes and asked God to help me help to work it out so that my life could make a greater impact on the world for the glory of God. 
no exceptions, no excuses. I was willing to let God direct my life anywhere he wanted. That's a pretty dangerous thing to say, (laughs) because about a year after that, I was in my first Islamic country. Through a a chain of circumstances that were like, you're kidding. Really? Yes, really. That's how it happened. Um, The other thing is... uh, Contact info. Yeah. Um, you could email me at donp at peopleofyes.com. Um, D-O-N-P at peopleofyes.com. Again, that's on the handout that you're going to make available for download. You know, if you've got a heart or you want a heart for Muslims, just ask the Lord of the Harvest to send out workers into the harvest and to make you one of them. And just say, Lord, I want to have the joy of seeing the lost sheep coming into the Father's house, into the into the kingdom of God, I'm willing to be available. I'm willing to be part of what you're doing in the world to see the lost come in. Just work it out so that that can happen. And you can bet God will be all over that prayer. Wow. I'm loving that. I'm just sitting here thinking how amazing God is that he, he's bringing all of this together. And, and Don, we are about at the end of our time. So I just want to say thanks again so much for being here. I can't begin to explain how happy I am and how much I enjoyed connecting with you. Thank you. And I'd encourage anyone, you know, email me questions, comments, complaints, uh, anything (laughs) you like. I love to hear from people and I do read my emails and get back to them. And I've had a blast. Uh, I hope it proves helpful to some people. And thank you for inviting me, Brian. It's been a really good time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Missions show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes by visiting engagingmissions.com slash iTunes. Audio editing for this program was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studios. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.